Hello and welcome. This is Working Class to World Class. But before we go any further, I do have a little favour of you. If you could hit that follow or subscribe button, then that would be a massive help. Thank you. Now, in this episode, I'm catching up with one of life's good guys, quite possibly one of the nicest people I have ever met in business, and I don't say that lightly. This man has led and he's advised on many leading marketing agencies over numerous decades, although he's not that old. He also runs a series of events called Podge, and they're designed for people in the music, sporting, digital, and design sectors. He is a remarkable human being, and he has a remarkable story. Breaking through the barriers of adversity, I'm Lynn Lester, and this is Working Class to World Class. Phil, it's an absolute delight to be with you today. I think you know you are probably one of my favourite people in this industry and in the, the madness of digital. But what's really been amazing about you is how you've continued to be grounded. I know you come from that working class background, which we are going to explore and we're going to interrogate a little right. bit. But how must you feel? Like you, you must feel so proud of what you've achieved, given you were a wee boy away back then. Yeah, it's, you, have, you have to pinch yourself sometimes because like, obviously when you grow up in the area that I grew up in, uh, there aren't that many people that you can look to that have done great things that you, you hear or worship. The only one I can think of, and it was years after me, was Steve Coogan, who actually grew up in the same, same sort of town, wow. and Paul Scholes, but obviously 20, 30 years after I was up there. So whether it was still as uh, rough when they were there, I don't know. A bit of rough is good. We don't mind a bit of rough. I come from a bit of rough myself. Yeah. So, Phil, if we do go back, and we're, we're going to get to the present in a second, but if we go back to where it all began then, so you were brought up in a council estate in North Manchester, and I've remembered the North because it's really important. <laughs> that's a rough part. And you lived with your mum and your dad and your two sisters, Catherine and Beryl. What was that like? It was great because... Uh, for us, we knew no different anyway, so it's just it. But my mum and dad, they'd come from a really rough area which was called Hume, and they, they lived in an area where it was all being demolished. And it was when they were demolishing the houses around Hume, they then had to find houses, council houses, to put people. And my mum and dad, had their names forward for a house on this new estate that they were building called Langley Estate in North Manchester, which is like near the nearest town, was a town called Middleton. Um, but they had to have three children to, have, to get a council house. So, and they had, they had me, I was the first one, then Catherine, and it wasn't until they got, we had Beryl, who still curses my mum for calling her Beryl, and nick, nicknames herself to Bez, um, but once we got that, we then got this um, council house on Buttermere Drive. Every, every house on the council estate was named after a Lake District place. Uh, we just happened to be Buttermere. And there was Windermere, Borrowdale, Grassmere, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but it was great. Absolutely loved it. There was obviously no computers then, so all the kids just went out and played in the street. Uh, in my case, football. In the case of my sisters, rounders or uh, hopscotch or any number of games, but it was always outside. You know, there was no particular reasons to want to stay indoors. We we had a telly, 
but it was a black and white telly and it was quite a small screen so it wasn't you wouldn't stay in to watch a film you'd actually go out and play and and I think in in later years that's what I look back and think that that's what a lot of kids miss these days because they they're more protected by their parents they're probably not kicked out in the street to go and play football and I, I think you lose something by not doing that do you know I think you're right it's funny because where we were brought up and my mom and dad are working class through and through and you were never allowed inside maybe if it was raining heavy you might be allowed in for a little bit yeah, but other than yeah. that you're booted out get some air in your lungs get all you're not coming back and if you came in it's like what do you want well, why are you in here and it's yeah. like can i have diluting juice or a, we called it a piece of jam so that was <laughs> a, that was the luxuries back then so, so you said you were a footballer were you any good i actually was that was the probably the only thing i've, I've ever been really good at was football and um, so I played, I, I, all the schools up there, there were a lot more Catholic schools than, than there were Protestant schools. And so my mum and dad weren't religious, but actually they put us into a Catholic school because it was nearest and it was, and it did the job. But I always played football for the school, but then I signed on for local clubs. And because it was quite a tough environment, the estate, all the teams were quite good. So you, you never went on there and didn't get a punch off someone during 90 minutes. So you'd always come off like uh, feeling quite good about yourself. Uh, I played for a, a team called Holling and the, and the Hull was for Hollins and the Lang was for Langley. And that was a right old mix of people they just put together. And then Langley casuals. And, but, but it was all like good fun, really enjoyed it. And then it was something that in later years, which I think you're going to get to, probably most of the lucky breaks that I've had have come through football, uh, which you don't know that. But, uh, no. You know, <laughs> you know I, th I think the thing is as well, you know, when we've spoken in the past, I think what's really made you who you are are your parents. And you always talk really fondly of them, Phil, and I would just love to get a bit more insight into what they were like. My dad was, uh, for a start, he was a Man City fan and I was a Man United fan. So that, oh dear. <laughs> that meant for quite a lot of years of pain. And uh, at that time, they were both as good as each other anyway. But my dad was a foreman scaffolder. And I never knew a time ever when he didn't work seven days a week. It was just the norm. There was no you know, weekends or him going out. He never owned a car. But he did have a little company van that he got in in the, his later years of having the job and he used to go around checking on the scaffolding outside railway stations and he would take my mum and she would love it because she'd see herself as his navigator and so the two of them would go off in the van and looking at railway bridges and checking the scaffolding which is not the most exciting job in the world but everybody loved him he was a boxer in the air force champion boxer in the air force um, he was a tough guy, partly because if you're a scaffolder, you've got to be fairly strong. But uh, he used to go to the, the, the Hebers Working Men's Club and nowhere else. That was, that was a night out, which my mum hated it. But <laughs> in those days, it would be the men would all go out when the bingo started and then all go into another bar. And all the women would actually be there doing, doing the cards, doing four or five sheets of bingo so um, my mum was a, a cleaner she was a cook in the in the war 
Sackville was. She was actually a corporal and a cook. So a lot of the planes that she saw going out, she, she used to count them coming back. And they would never be the same number coming back as they were going out. So for her, that was like uh, a memory of a job that she had that was really useful. And then when she, when she got a job, it tended to be menial jobs. It was like a cleaning role. And, but she was just, the pair of them together were just amazing. So, and when my dad died, when he was only, only 62, so she had 25 years without him. And I always think now that people that, are, that grow old together, they really enjoy each other's company. And I think she missed out on a lot of that. So my dad never got to see retirement. At 62, he was three years away from stopping a seven-day-a-week job, but he never actually got to see that. So, plus he, he I've, as you know, I've got two children, Claire and PJ, and he saw Claire because we went on holiday together with Claire, and and I've got pictures of my dad with Claire, but he never got to see PJ because Babs was uh, pregnant with PJ when my dad died. So that, they, uh, that was something he's always missed out. So I, I called, uh, he's called PJ now, but I, my dad was big Phil, I was Phil, and then because of PJ not be, never seeing him, I called him Phil also. So there was a little line, but PJ being PJ with his own mind, decided when he was about 18 or 19 to change his name to PJ because <laughs> all the kids at university called him PJ, his schoolmates called him PJ and he actually changed it on by deed poll on his passport so I'm never forgiven the little sod for that. You sod PJ. <laughs> but, but let's go back to your dad. So you know you can tell even from speaking to you here how close you were to your father. What happened to him? Uh, he died of cancer in the end, pancreatic cancer, and he was ill for quite a few years before. And it was just the way things were then. I mean, people still get cancer now and, and die, but I think then it was, there was less they could do for people. So when, when he was ill, he, a lot of how I remember my dad is as, as a muscular big guy that people would think twice about going too close. And when he died, he was quite a thin guy, which is a shame. But, um, you, you, I mean, the scaffolder, I've never, I've never done any manual labour in my life. The, the nearest, I was a window cleaner for a while, helping on the council estate, and I did menial jobs before I got a proper sit-down job. But my dad never, ever had that. He was always out in the van or climbing up the scaffolding or... And then, as most people who were, had trades in those days, they would all want to go in the pub Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. They would spend their time in a pub, and I got used to that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you did, Phil. I've seen you at the bar. Now, the thing is, you know, it's when you talk about your dad, and you know, it's horrible when, when you've got someone that's got so fit and healthy, and they're the life and soul of the family. And, I, and I've been through that with both my parents, mm. and I've seen them both deteriorate and, and become really, really sick. And I think, you know, you can probably relate to that, how, how that makes you feel. I mean, how, I don't, hope you don't mind me asking, how, how did it make you feel? Terrible. It was, it was a, a really sad time, but I would say even more for my two sisters, because they, 
had, they were lived within a mile of where my mum was and my mum and dad. Even now, all these years later, they still haven't moved within five miles of, so they've, they've never gone out of that little bit of North Manchester where they call home. But I'd actually gone down to London. So I'd gone to London and therefore I wasn't seeing it day in, day out. And when you're seeing someone deteriorate and you're seeing mum who was struggling with that, uh, so they, they really bore the brunt of all of that. And including when my mum, like many, many years later when she was ill, they're the ones that are going around every day. Uh, a bit like my wife does now with her mum. She's just like, she's at beck and call. I think guys have it easier. There's sort of, it's not quite the same as, as it is with a, a daughter that tend to take on more of the responsibilities. Do you know, I can sort of relate to that because well, I'm the youngest of seven children and people used to think oh, we were Catholic and it's just my mum and dad liked sex and they just had no TV. No, they did have a TV, but, but people used to pretend they never. But the thing is, you know, when my brother lived in Blackpool and both my parents were ill, I, I actually think it was almost in a way harder for him mm. because we had each other and we were there and we were with our parents and we were part of, sadly, their journey. But I do think when you're isolated alone somewhere else, and obviously you've got Babs, and who we're going to talk about, and she's amazing, yeah. and you know she's a fantastic yeah. support. But do, do you think? I mean, I I don't think I ever have. Do you think you ever get over it, like when your parents die? Well, you tend to blank things out because I was at the time when my dad died. I was three years in to start setting up a business with two of my best mates, and so there were three of us like who built this camp, started this company and our houses were security for the business. And back in, it, it tends in these days, it doesn't happen so much where you have to sign a document to say that your house is security should anything happen to the business. We were also a partnership, which meant we were joint and severally liable. So if one of us had a problem, it actually affected the other two, and, and back in those days, the cost of buying equipment and leasing it was like huge amounts of money. So actually, you tend to just blank out the things that are happening that are not so good in your life in order that you can focus on making sure that all of these people that you now employ were actually being paid. And, and that gets quite scary. So I think, but my sisters didn't have that. They both had jobs and their jobs were with the, like the probation office in Manchester. So they were dealing with scallywags every day. <laughs> and like all, all the uh, dross is probably too unkind a word, but not the, not the best of people, but they had more of the day-to-day -day dealings with it. And I used to just blank out anything that got in the way of making sure that I could pay the wages of my staff. Even the day that my dad was, um, died was on December the 13th. And it was the Christmas party of the company that we had. And I was going up for my, for my mum to my dad. And my two partners reminded me that they didn't know any of the clients because I was the person that dealt with all the clients. So I, I went up to Manchester and came back on the train and was welcoming people into, it was on Tottenham Court Road, but welcoming them all in. And that was not, that was no fun. 
you know, but they, uh, and some of them knew because my partners had told them. But it was just one of those things. I knew that uh, Ken and Derek, who were my two mates as well as partners, that they didn't, uh, they probably knew 10% of the clients. And they were all coming to a party to be welcomed by people they didn't know. So I had to be there. And then I went back to Manchester the following day. So that's one of life's things, isn't it? Responsibilities. No, definitely. Mm. And I think the thing is as well, it's a working class way, isn't it? You get on with it. So we were always told, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, stop feeling sorry for yourself and get on. And I think for, for people like you and I, we just have, a, you know, crying and getting upset is, is almost not a sign of weakness, but it can feel like that sometimes, I think, especially yeah. for Northern men. And, you know, I, I know when your mum was sort of growing up and I know she really had it tough as well, like during the war, her and her two brothers were put in a home. And I can um, imagine yeah. she brought that out in her maternal way. And I can sort of almost see that kindness in you. So I don't yeah. know if you want to tell us a bit about that. Well, my mum and my dad both lived in really, really poor. When, when we, we thought that we didn't have a lot of money, but actually we were rich compared to how, how they were there. And they really had it tough. And my mum was one, I think, one of nine kids. My, sis my sisters are probably, if they listen to this, they're probably, no, it was 10 or it was 11. <laughs> or they'll, they're good at remembering the absolute detail. It was around about nine kids. And I think my dad was similar. And a lot of them in those days died before they actually got to any age. So they, they died in childbirth. Um, but my mum had brothers, Mike, Nick, George, and three of, the three of them got put in a home. And so it was actually my mum, who was the eldest, uh, Nick and Mike, and all got chucked in a home. And we know, without ever being able to prove it, we know that they were abused because it was the way, it was what happened. And, and I know because what happened with the two, her two brothers and just how they were in life, uh, they weren't, they weren't used to hugging people. I think if you're, if you're stuck in a home and everything is about you do this now and you do this and you're not, you don't grow up with some of those tender skills. So I think, I think my, uh, when my mum found my dad and they actually got married, I think that changed everything. So I think my mum looked to my dad to be a saviour if you like so but they're both from that's they're both from a really tough background and, and therefore everything that happened when we when we moved to this council estate it was for us it was luxury for mum and dad it was beyond luxury this was a house that had a, a little garden at the back it had an outhouse little little thing in the back garden where you could put put any belongings that you had. They didn't have any for a few years, but there was a ginnel that was at the side of the house, the little ginnel that went to the back garden where you'd wheel your dustbins out. But it actually was just luxurious. And none of us, uh, I can speak for my sisters, none of us ever felt that we were living in a deprived area. Uh, the house opposite us, Mr. and Mrs. Riley had nine children. Uh, we had three bedrooms in our house. They had four bedrooms, but they had nine children. We had three. God knows where they all slept. But there was, there was some interesting 
slightly weird people like not that far away from us, directly opposite. And then next to them there was the, the Sullivans who were very Irish Catholic and didn't, <laughs> weren't allowed to go out and play with the, the, the yobs from across the road, if you like, and I, I would be classed as a yob. Uh, so, but it was lovely actually, we all, we lived there, um, I was born in 1950, um, Catherine in 51, I think it was, and Beryl in 53, and that's when we were able to move to the estate in 1954. So we lived there from 1954, and when I left, it was uh, to come to London, it was 1973, so it was quite a good place to get your ground in, if you like. And, uh, but I enjoyed it, I actually loved it. And I, I, would, I wouldn't change anything. I think the upbringing in an estate like that is actually, it's good for the soul. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And I think the thing is as well, I don't know what your family were like, but I remember from, from my mum, it was always, if you got fed and you were clean and you were warm, you were looked after and that was classed as having luxury being safe yeah. in the confines of, of those four walls, whatever room you were in. And I always remember my mum making like, my favourite dinner was always the big pot of soup and breads, and then later on, the big pot of rice, like creamed rice. And, and it was just like, she, she would make big dishes because we had a big family. Yeah. So it had to feed many. And then yeah. no wonder we got the visitors because our cooking was amazing. <laughs> so was your mum a cook? Was she quite a good cook? I wouldn't say good cook. If I compare it to Babs, <laughs> they're not in the same league. Babs is just a brilliant. <laughs> but um, cooking for her, when she felt comfortable, was cooking for several hundred to a thousand like troops, and none of whom would complain if if they had sausages instead of steak. They would just sort of eat whatever was in front of them. But my mum would always make sure because my dad was always out working and started early, came home late. She'd always cook a meal that she'd know my dad would like. And I just happened to like all the same stuff. The problem I have, as anybody that knows me now in my later life, is that I, I am still the same. I actually, I go to the poshest restaurants in London and I'm members of posh clubs. But unless there's something on the menu that resembles a steak, or resembles a lamb chop or a pork chop or something meaty and unless there's potatoes on that menu I'm completely screwed I just I don't feel comfortable uh, I used to my PA when in the business I had used to phone the restaurants when I was going out with clients and explain that her boss had an eating disorder and was not able to have seafood or fish or this whole long list and uh, would they mind doing, even this was at the DNAD Awards, the Design Week Awards, you name it, they would do a special meal. And I'd always, have to, I'd always end up with chips, <laughs> steak, like, and something, but I could tell that everyone on the table with me was wishing they'd had the same as I was, and they'd all be there with their little mayonnaise pate, whatever, thinking, God, oh, really fancy that steak that he's got. I'm sure they grabbed a chip or two. They probably couldn't resist dipping it in your yeah, sauce. Exactly. So, I mean, it sounds as though, you know, growing up, as you say, you might not have had the money and the wealth, but you were far wealthier than so many people could ever be because you had the love 
of your parents and it just sound, they just sound like amazing people. I wish I had met them because they do sound like little gems, I have to say. Yeah, they, they definitely were. Anyone that knew them back then always remembers them as being just great people. And they, it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a row of, say we lived in Baltimore Drive, but if you've got a row of houses, there's normally one family that everyone would go to if they, if they uh, were in trouble. And that would tend to be my mum and dad. You know, they, they didn't go, they weren't nosy. They would never go into anybody else's business, but they were the ones that if there was a problem, then people would come. Um, and they loved it. They were really, really happy there. The problem was in later years, my dad wanted to, to upgrade and move off the council estate and tried to persuade my mum to move house and she just wouldn't. So he never actually ever got to move before he died. He was still where he'd been since 1954. And a lot of older people are like that. When they're, if they're really comfortable where they are, why, why should they move? Bigger garden, you know, a bigger garden means more work. <laughs> it's like uh, having a garage. Well, what's the point of a garage if you've only got a company van? <laughs> so, so, the mindset, the mindset was just very different, but they were just uh, really nice people. Yeah, and the Karen Jean passed to you without a shadow of a doubt, and felt, you know, it's, it's obviously you grew up, it was all lovely, and you know, you had a great time, a rare time with your sisters, and then you went to school. So, of course, I'm sure you did go to school, because you've yeah. told me. <laughs> so, what was that like? What, what, what kind of people were you, and did you have many friends? Loads of friends. Uh, and I was quite sociable back then, but mainly through sport, mainly through uh, 100 yards, 220 yards, high jump, long jump, anything that involved running, jumping or kicking a ball, I would, I'd have a go at. And therefore you make friends. So you, you make a lot more friends through doing sporty things. In the class, they'd, I'd, I'd have a group of friends that'd be like really good mates, but they tended not to be the brainiest in the class. And I think I, I probably suffered. If I'd have been sat next to one of the brainy kids, <laughs> I'm sure that I would have ended up with a few GCSEs and maybe A-levels. You know, now, now my kids both went to university. I didn't know anybody that went to university. So school was really something that you did to learn as much as you could in the five-year spell that you're in the school. In my case, it was St. Dominic Savio. That the little schools were all like taught by nuns. So we were, I was in the Assumption school taught by nuns who were really strict. But from 11 onwards, I never passed my 11 plus and went to this uh, secondary modern called St. Dominic. And it was great. It was actually a really good school. They used to, all the things they would never dream of doing now to a child, like giving them the cane, the strap, the slipper, every form of corporal punishment I used to get on a regular basis. It was either the two main areas, either it's hold your hands out or it's bend over there and you get wet. But that was five years of that. And nowadays I can't imagine, and I've got grandchildren, I can't imagine them being beaten up by a teacher. But it wasn't special to that school, it was just every school. They were just really, really tough. So you tended to behave yourself quite often. And, but in my case, I came away, I think I had one GCE, like something, 
ridiculous and, and even that wouldn't have been a high grade. So, uh, so everything that happened after school was a massive bonus really, you know. No. One is better than none, I have to say, so well done. Congratulations <laughs> on that achievement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's fun. I remember my mum telling me when she was at school, she, she got the belt as well, I think she was a bit gobby. And I remember one day she said she pulled her hand away and the teacher would scalp her own leg. So then yeah. you would get it even harder. But I think my gran, who I never met my grandparents, I think she was right up at the school. So I'm surprised your burly father wasn't right up there grabbing the teacher by the hair. Oh, <laughs> quite the opposite. He would, uh, I remember the first present he ever bought me was a Freddie Mills punch bowl, my dad, because he loved boxing. Uh, and Henry Cooper was one of his heroes back then. But Freddie Mills was like a boxer in the 50s. And my dad bought me this, uh, you stood on the base of it and you just kept hitting this ball. The ball would bounce back and you had to move. But all he said was, uh, he said, never be a bully, never go and hit anybody, but you've got to learn how to hit, the, if you get hit by someone, you've got to learn how to hit them back. And that was what the Freddie Mills punch ball. So my dad, would, he wouldn't have blinked an eyelid if I was getting the strap on the cane. He blamed me for being bit Larry. Oh. For being a boy, for being you. Yeah. I, I've got a son, so I know you know you've met him, so I, he could be a bit like that too. <laughs> I, oh, he's a lovely lad. I can't believe anyone would hit him. Oh, no. And I don't think my sisters, I don't think my sisters ever got beaten up at school. I think it was, it was something they saved for me. Oh, no. <laughs> it was all for you, it was all for you. And it's, you know, it's funny when you talk about your dad and how he, you know, instilled that. You don't hit first. We were always taught that. If you don't, you don't hit first, but you, you sure as heck hit harder if you get hit. And yeah. so what other kind of working class principles do you think your family drilled into you? You know, one's looking after yourself. What kind of other things? I think more than anything, the work ethic. Just uh, when I, if you ever talk to my kids now, you know both of them and say, does your dad ever, is he ever not working? And they'll both say, no, he's always working. So there's no such thing as an eight hour shift or a 10 hour shift. And you would just work depending on how much work he's doing. And if you're, if in my case, I'm organizing a big event or something like that. But that was comes from my dad because I never, ever, there was never a time when he wasn't working. And so you weren't outside of the work times. You would never see your dad because he'd, he'd leave in the morning uh, put his donkey jacket on, which is what he always had hanging, hanging up the little donkey jacket, get in the van. My mum would do him a packed lunch with a flask for drinks and, and that's it, they're off. But then, then when he enjoyed himself for, for a working class man, it, it wasn't, he didn't have loads of hobbies, he didn't play any sports, but he'd, he'd love going to his local club or going to the local pub with neighbours or with friends and so some of the only pictures, I haven't got loads of pictures from that era, but the ones that I've got are probably him with a couple of mates still at the bar at the Eber's Working Men's Club <laughs> having a pint. And the other thing was actually when I came to London all these years later and I went into a, a pub and ordered a pint of mild and they looked at me as though I was from a different planet <laughs> and said well, what are you want about? And I said oh well I'll have a pint of mixed which is like half bitter, half mild. And they still looked at me as weird. So even getting a pint of bitter wasn't easy. <laughs> but it was like, so I realized that everyone in London was more of a lager drinker 
back in, the, in 1973 this was. Uh, and I, all I wanted was a pint of bitter or a pint of mild because that's what I'd grown up with. So, But my dad also taught me, I've, I've never gone off, I've always preferred a pint to uh, never drink spirits. You know, I never, I can't imagine actually having a whiskey or anything like that. I'd much prefer uh, a pint of bitter and I'm quite happy to sit me in a corner and tell me to get on with it. Job done. He sounds great. He sounds, he sounds like a brilliant dad. He taught you to fight and he taught, or, or to defend yourself and he taught you to have a good drink, but make sure it's a lager. <laughs> make sure it's not a lager. Yeah, it's not a lager. Unless you go to London and you change your mind. Yeah. So when you, you obviously, you finished school and you had one qualification. Yes, yes. What happens then? Well, I, in the final year at school, the careers officers were, were coming round, chatting to the people and asking them what they were interested in and giving people in the class a bit of a, an idea of what jobs were out there, what they could do. And I remember I was looking at a book and it, it, I was looking at policemen, I'll be honest with you, I was looking at policemen, which was a, a P and an O. The next job was printer. And it was, I, I was either going to be a policeman or a printer. The only reason I was looking at printer was because my dad told me that one of our neighbours, was a guy called Bob Walsh, how I remember that name, I've got no idea, because this was a long time ago. So he's Bob Walsh, he said, he's always got money to buy rounds for people, which means that he must earn a lot of money doing print. So in my head <laughs> was the fact that print means a lot of money. And police is actually, it's an outdoor job. You know, get to wear a uniform, fancy a little bit of that. So when they, when they were asking, like, did anyone have a preference? I put my hand up and said, I'll uh, print, actually. Because they, they said there was a vacancy in a printing company in Manchester, in Juicy Street. And nobody else was putting their hand up. And I just thought, it sounds, that sounds like a job for me. And I was actually really good at English and spelling and stuff. I'd ne that was the one thing, the one subject that I could actually say I'm, I'm good at. Um, so I went for the interview for the printing company, but I realised I had to take an exam. And the exam was a, uh, for the British Printing Industries Federation. And it was quite a big exam, but it was mainly intelligence questions. It was about like quizzes and codes and and I'd never taken anything like that before. And I wasn't used to passing exams, as you now know. But I actually came in the top three or four people. And it was because it was common sense. The, the questions were common sense. So I got through, got the job, but realised that then that one of the tests they gave me was a colourblind test. And I didn't realise I was colourblind. So I was six, 17. Uh, red green blind and going for a job as a printer <laughs> so where, where the, whole, the whole basis of the job was mixing inks and printing and so I thought it's not going to work and but luckily and luckily because it affected the rest of my life there was um, a role within the printers that was for a monotype keyboard and monotype caster operator and it was all black and white it was like type the type was very much black and white and they said would you like to do that and I did a five-year apprenticeship as a as a typesetter and and the colorblind has never bothered me again for the rest of my life uh, apart from Babs when she was putting suits out for me she'd always put a tie that w would match because she knew that I'd get the tie wrong 
Oh God, sorry. So, sorry to hear you're colourblind, but what a fantastic story, I have to say. And it's random, it's how do people end up in the jobs that determine their lives. And, you know, if I hadn't have got that job, I probably wouldn't have got any of the others in the years to come after that. So, and it was a five year apprenticeship that I had to stick. And that's where my dad came in, the strictness of making sure that I didn't, because I, I, there were bits of it I hated. Uh, and I was like, it was the fashion then was long hair and I had hair down to my shoulders. And uh, they ended up, because the machine was quite a dangerous machine, this monotype caster, and it was like metal at 700 degrees being flashed through. They, they made you put something over your hair so that you didn't, so you felt and looked like an idiot. And I would have left. I think, I don't think I'd have lasted had my dad not been a really strong character and just making me, and he said, after, you, after five years, do whatever you like, but stick with the apprenticeship because then you've got a trade. And if you've got a trade, then you can get a job anyway. And he was right, you know. And that's, that's all the kids around me wanted as well. They, none of them really had dreams of going to university. If they did, they never shared them with me because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't in the right gang. Uh, it was a dream of having a job like a welder or a plumber or a joiner or whatever that would that you could earn money, go out and enjoy yourself. So very low, modest aims, really. But do you know, it's a job that everybody needs the service of, don't they? So you actually will never be redundant if you have a trade. And my yeah. family used to say that, although I was never, and I, I just sort of bucked the stereotype. I'm like, no. Yeah. So, I mean, what was really funny as well in that story is you were talking about how you kind of, you, when you went for the first sort of print interview, it yeah. was because you could buy the round. Yes, at the pub. yes. Phil, I think you still owe me a round. When are you going to buy me it? I, I will buy, how about here, at the, <laughs> at the, at the drum labs. If you're still talking to me, I'll, I'll take you on in that. I will bet you that your man behind the bar now, though, Vlad, will not know what a pint of bitter is either. <laughs> so I don't think I'll get one. So after your apprenticeship, what then happened? But the apprenticeship was funny because I, all the time that I'd been at school, I would never have regarded myself as one of the bright kids. During my apprenticeship, I suddenly realised that probably was because the, uh, the subjects were, were subjects that I was enjoying. They involved a lot of English. I used to love writing and I'd love, I used to write stories and poems and lyrics and and over a course of several years during my apprenticeship, I'd actually put together a book of song lyrics and I, I typeset them all myself. And each one was like weighed, it was solid metal. So, and they weighed quite a lot. And when I'd got 30 of them together that I had to take out individually, smuggle them out of the printing company, I then got a friend, Harold Pohl, his name was, who had a printing shop to print them for me. And then I sent them to the local library and they put them in the library. They said, these are really good. And I decided that I wanted to be a songwriter. And so I used to get New Musical Express and uh, Melody Maker back then. And there was always ads at the back saying musician wants lyricist. And I started to apply for them. And there was this guy in London called Dave Cook who had, he wrote back to me, everything was by letter. So it took days 
between sending something and getting it back. There was no emails back then. But I sent this to him and he, he narrowed it down from 140 people who'd responded to about six. And he wrote a song, a tune, and then got those six people to write a lyric for that tune on a cassette and then send it back. Uh, sorry, not on a printed, but he'd sent a cassette for the, with a the tune. Sent that back. And then he didn't narrow it down from six to two. And then I was one of the two. And then I did another one. And then it became me that... So I actually came to London to be a songwriter. That was my, my plan. And never quite worked out like that. So, but in 1973, when I left Manchester, I finished my five-year apprenticeship. I needed to get a job in London in order that I've, I've got income. And I went into a typesetting company because I, because I was a typesetter. Uh, and me and this musician used to go down Tim Panelli, meeting all of these legends of the day, people like Mickey Most. And I, you, know, you won't remember them now because it was a different era. Uh, and it was just like, I really thought that was going to be it. But they were such a strange group of people uh, who I didn't trust. I didn't meet anybody that made me feel comfortable. Uh, and the fact that I'd grown up where I'd grown up, and I was suddenly talking to people that were saying, do you want to come out on my boat and yacht? And it just didn't, it didn't feel right. I remember Long John Baldry was one of the guys that I was chatting away to, and, and I could tell he actually fancied me. It was, and, and I, I, I wasn't used to that. that it, in this modern day, it was quite normal, 1973. You've got someone who's grown up on a council estate and all of a sudden they've got a pop singer chatting them up. I was scared to death. And I, but I did, I did want to do something a little bit different. And I'd just met Barbara Babs. And, and that was the reason I never went back to Manchester. So if, if it hadn't been for Babs, I reckon I'd have been on the next train back to Manchester, <laughs> like scurrying to go and meet up with my old mates. Uh, but Barbara's mum never forgave me because when, when I had met her, she had a really good job. She had a better job than I did, working for Ken Livingstone in, in the um, GLC. But I told her I, I needed to do something. I'd just done five years apprenticeship and I wanted to do something a bit random and silly. And in that era, it wasn't the era of people going abroad for holidays. It was the era when people went to holiday camps or they'd go to Rill or Prestatin or... Uh, and I said, I'd quite like to work in a holiday camp for a season as, as a, a blue coat or a red coat. And, and Babs, being Babs, said, oh, I'll come and do it with you. And the two, the two of us went for an interview in London to go do a season as blue coats at Pontins in Blackpool. And it was her worst nightmare. She absolutely hated it. Uh, her mum hated me for putting her through it. And... I, I, I won't go into the whole story, but that was, I think that was a real bonding exercise because if you give up a really good job to go with some northern pleb to go, <laughs> to go work in a holiday camp, as, and I was Uncle Phil, the children's entertainer, so I, I got kids, which was quite good, but Babs had to dance with the really old, old people, so she was like getting up waltzing with 80-year-olds who were there, and she just... If you uh, talk to her about it one day, she'll tell you it was the worst six months of her life. <laughs> uh, but then I came back to London, 
uh, started to work in typesetting companies because that's where, that's what my skill was. Um, and realised that I couldn't do the job that I'd done my five-year apprenticeship in because the trade union in London, everybody was in a trade union, but the, the NGA, which was the National Graphical Association, did the keyboard side of it and the SOGAT did the, uh, the, the caster. So whereas I'd come up doing both, I had to make a choice of like, do I, do I type or do I run this? And it was partly because it was full of lead and fumes and noise that I thought, actually, I'll do the, I'll do the keyboard. And that became the job that I then moved around. And so Barbara and I, two years after meeting, got married. So 1975, uh, bought a little end of terraced house in South Wimbledon, or Merton, as it was, next to a football field. Uh, I immediately signed on for the local team there, who were called Ranella back in the day. Babs hated it because we had to wash the kit every, every 11 weeks. One person had to take the kit home and wash it. So <laughs> when it was our turn, it was not, not her best day. Um, and that was it. So we had, we had a little house and we'd made it really. We had a little two bedroom end of terrace and we got married at Bromley Registry Office and very low key wedding, probably about 20 people there, most of whom are no longer with us. So certainly all the oldies that were there are not with us. And best thing ever. That means next year, next year I will have been with her 50 years. So I can only imagine, you know, you've, you've come from North Manchester, working class family, you had one qualification, you got your lucky break, you went to London, you met Babs, and now you've got a house. I mean, did that not just feel amazing? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was the be all and end all. It was actually £13,000 the house cost us, and the mortgage was 11700 and it was in those days, it was ridiculous because the interest rate was 15%, you know, mortgage rate, 15%. And uh, it, it took all of my wages was just towards the mortgage. And then Babs had a little bit left over to start putting furniture in. But yeah, those were just having, just having a house. It could have been one bedroom, but the fact that it was ours and it was two bedroom, we were there for six years and then started to move up the ladder as they say down here. You thought the ladder. Did, did, your, did your family think you were posh? Well, they always thought Babs was posh, and so did I. <laughs> they, they just, we just all assume she's posh, because she's, first of all, she's posher than I am with a London accent. <laughs> uh, but she lived in a caravan for six years. And actually, Babs had it probably worse than I did. So her mum, her dad and mum split up. And she never saw her dad after the age of 11 or 12. She only ever saw her mom, and her and her mom lived in a caravan for six years together at a time of life when a girl is wanting to go out and look good. You know, it's an outside toilet they had. And so actually, I think Babs and I would just, uh, it was perfect. So, you know, Langley Estate was probably better than her caravan and the two of us together suddenly had this little house in Wimbledon and we were just there uh, thinking this is quite nice, I could get used to this 
and I didn't realise all those years later the houses that I would have and you know how tasty they became. Yeah. So, do you know it almost reminds me of the love story you talked about of your mum and dad. So when your mum met your dad she was complete and it sounds as though when you went on your, your life and your path and when you met Babs it was almost life complete for you. Do you think there's a... I mean, yeah, she's, uh, I, would, I would, as I said earlier, I would definitely have been on the train back to Manchester. All my pals were there, my family were there. I didn't, I didn't know anybody in London. I had one uncle that I, uh, I knew, but I hardly knew him. And it was, it was just meeting Babs. And then the uncle who lived in Clapham allowed us to have a room in his flat. And Babs and I were there for two years, like living in this room in a flat whilst we sorted our act out. And I'd like to say it was really romantic and I got down <laughs> on one knee and proposed to Babs and said, will you marry me? But when she tells the story, she said that she, as she said to me, uh, is this going to go anywhere? Because if not, I'm, <laughs> I'm off to New Zealand. Because <laughs> she had an auntie in New Zealand. So she was just going to do a runner. So I thought, mm, okay then, you know, I, I better like, step it up a little bit. And that's when we got married. Oh, that was good. It was, a, it was a bit of um, a deadline there, so you had to act there was fast. A deadline or she was off ski. <laughs> probably the following week, knowing bad. She was very, very little. So I went to the Arndale Centre in Middleton, got, got a ring, 28 quid. This ring, 28 quid, which she always reminds me now, all these years later. We never got engaged, just went straight, straight to get married in the register office. My um, granny, Manchester, who was then in her 80s, never thought we were married because it was a registry office. It wasn't a big Catholic church wedding. So there was quite a few of a little group that actually didn't really regard it as a real wedding. So 50 years later, it is definitely a real wedding. Definitely, I know. <laughs> God, I'm going to give Babs her medal when I see her. Yeah, yeah you should talk to Babs about it. I will. This, so. And so, you know, if you fast forward, so, so I mean, it's just really fascinating where you were and how you, how you sort of really developed you as a person. And you're in this big town, you're in the big smoke, a bit out your depth at times, but Babs there to keep you on, on the sort of right track. And then you kind of went on to, to found your own company. Yeah, I, two friends. Derek and Ken, who I was, I worked with, they had decided, the two of them, that they would quite like to do it themselves and build their own typesetting company. And they both agreed that in order to make it work, they needed a third person. And uh, they've told me this story. They both wrote a name <laughs> on a piece of paper saying, well, who would you have? And, uh, and they both wrote the same name, which was me. But it was actually, it, it, would probably not been a me that would have said let's do this it was them that said let's do it that was 1979 what I didn't realize is that that would open up this whole new uh, opportunity for me to to use skills that I had that I didn't know I had and they were they were the people skills because everything throughout the apprenticeship and throughout the typesetting devs were all about equipment. They were all about doing a job within a time frame. But they were, none of them were about people. They were actually, uh, the reps would go out and get the work, they'd bring it in, and then I would just do, do the work. 1979, the three of us put our houses as security for this, to start this business. And there were wow. just three of us. 
but our wives all had to sign with NatWest to say that they agreed that the house was security. And that the house is all that any of us had. That was all our money was in that. So it was one of those things where one of the three partners, Derek, was, was going to get the work. Ken was a real all-rounder that could do anything. And I was the typesetter. That was the plan. I was the one who was going to actually churn it. What happened is the guy with the little black book who was supposed to get the work realised that a lot of the companies that promised him they would give him work never did. And actually, we were, we were suddenly starting to think this is not going to go well because that we've got so much at stake. So I, was, I went out and I started to go, literally, our, our office was in the Woolworth Road and I was looking who on the Woolworth Road and Camberwell Road and around the Elephant, who can I go and talk to that might give us a job? And that's when I realised I had a, a skill that was uh, not natural. It was being, so I ended up, Shell became my biggest client for three years, simply because I built a relationship with the lady that used to run all of the Shell in-house design team. And she used to give us any work she could, but part of that was because we actually got on well and you form relationships. Design agency down the road called The Small Back Room. And I went there with one sheet of paper and I said, oh, this is our typeface, this is our typeface list. The rivals all had books, we had this one sheet. But again, if you, if you get on with the person, they're likely to give you a chance. And it was during those years, 1979, throughout the 80s, that I realised that I had a, a more of a natural affinity with getting people to want to work with us. And we ended up with about 90 staff. <laughs> the stress. Well, the stress, the stress went midway through the, the period because three companies came and they wanted to buy us. And they all wanted, were making us offers to buy the business. And in 1987, we accepted one of the offers from a big advertising agency. And it was a three-year earnout. And, and all of a sudden, from 1987 to 1990, the pressure had gone because our houses were no longer security. So the worst that could happen in, in the latter three years is that you failed on your earn out, that we didn't, we didn't get a lot of money out of it, or um, you know, there weren't really that many downsides to doing it. And, and we actually did okay. And that's, that's how I ended up sort of from 1987 onwards, because I knew that there was a, a pocket of money, as long as we worked really hard, there was a pocket of money there. But they gave us, they gave us each a down payment. And my two partners were really cautious individuals, Ken and Derek, they won't, they won't mind me saying this, but they, they wanted to leave their money in the company because the company that were buying us were paying us in shares a lot of their money and they, and they were on the up. I was the complete opposite. I just wanted to, I wanted to go on holiday somewhere I wanted to take Babs, so I, and I had all these plans. I wanted to buy a plot of land, and so I actually went to an, a travel agent in the Walworth Road and said, I've, "I've just come into a little chunk of money. I want to take my wife somewhere nice. What would you recommend?" I was the only person in the travel agents, and there were three women behind the counter, and all three of them came to me and started to talk through what I could do, and we ended up going on Concord to New York, uh, 
three nights at the Waldorf Astoria, came back on the QE2, and that's when I got Babs her engagement ring. So, uh, which was 12 years after we got married. So she actually had to wait 12 years to get an engagement ring, but she got it on the QE2, so she can stop moaning now. She can. <laughs> and that little lad from North Manchester done it. Uh, and that's, that's the bit that you still have to pinch yourself, you know. And then we went on holiday in Portugal and bought a plot of land because I thought at the end of that, at the end of the year now, I might be able to afford to pot, build a villa on it. And if not, I've just got this <laughs> plot of land. Uh, and that is what we did. And we actually built a villa, Casa Felipe, after my dad. So the Felipe thing was very much a dad thing. And that was, we had that for 30 years. So it's where my daughter got married. It's where my son's wife had a hen party. Uh, it's where all the round number birthday celebrations of everyone in my family were all over there. And it was just like, a, it's a beautiful thing. But to go from Langley Estate to having a, a villa in Portugal, uh, that was never on my, my wish list. It's a lovely story, Phil, and you know, I think my mum, you know, my family were the same. So when people pass away, it affects everybody else, especially their partner in crime and their person that was, yeah. you know, their solid infrastructure, I guess. So yeah, your family would have been so, so proud. I have absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, what I can sort of sense from you is obviously your, your mum and dad were just inspirational in so many ways, and I don't even think they knew it. How, how much they impacted your life for the good. But I see that in you as a person working in the digital, you know, advertising industry at the moment. I've probably never met someone quite as kind as you. And when I say kind, I don't mean you're splashing money about it. I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean, you're very kind with your most precious commodity, which is your time. And the time that you give people, I don't think can actually be underestimated. Do you think that's built in from the way your family helped you through life? Uh, yes, no question that it's definite. I, I think that when people give you that first opportunity, and I, I said to you earlier on, a lot of mine came from football, but when you get those opportunities and then you turn it into something, but getting the first opportunity is really quite difficult. And so when I started my own business, in the 80s with my, with my two partners, I used to go around and visit all the art colleges around the country. I used to go to Preston, Manchester, Falmouth, Newport, uh, Newcastle, and talk to the students and talk with the lecturers and talk about typography and get them interested in what happens when they're going out for their first job, um, what sorts of things they should do. And, and I've, I've always enjoyed doing that. It was just, that was part of me in my 30s spending a lot of time with, with students, knowing that they would come out and be a bit like me when I came to London. I was completely lost, thinking, what, what do I do now? What? Because I had a trade, it was fairly easy in that period to get a job. But if you come out of the, the college with a degree, you're, you're one of several thousand people, so you need that. Uh, I've always done it, naturally. Things like, even with the drum, and I've been chairing the judges for the Daddy Awards for 15 years or 16 years. But it's, it's 
in the very first year when I was asked if I would do that and you were, you were around, Gordon, Diane, Nick, uh, it would have been much easier to say no than it would have been to say yes because it was in, it was, can you come up to Glasgow? I'd never been to Glasgow in my life. I, the only Scottish people that I, I knew them was Gordon, <laughs> Gordon, Diane. Um, so it was, can you come up to Glasgow and can you put together a panel of judges from uh, outside of, I think it was outside of the M25 or inside of it. No, it was inside, that was right. Um, and stay overnight in a hotel in up there and then go back the same day. So it was like fly up, go, go back after the judging. If I have said no to that first one, I would have never have done the second, the third, the fourth. And so I've got 15 years of putting together the most interesting groups of people that, and it works for me as well as it works for the drum. But if you say no, when something's just a little bit awkward or it's, it means giving time when you're busy, then actually you can end up screwing up a million opportunities. I can't even think of the number of nice things that have happened just because I've met someone who was, was a judge at the Daddy Awards. So it is a two-way thing, isn't it, giving? Yeah, karma. Karma. Case in point. And now we have you, Phil, we're never going to let you go. <laughs> so you're stuck with us, you're stuck with us. Uh, and to sort of wrap up, I guess, what I would love you to tell the viewers is if you were to sort of say, out of all the principles you've learned, what have you clung on to the most from your working class roots that you will never, ever lose? Uh, I would say loyalty. Just if you, it's, it's a hard thing to put your finger on being loyal, but actually, if I look back now and think of the friends that I've got who are my closest friends, they're people that I worked with, either people I met at university when they were students, like Patrick Bagley, Jeff Nicholl, all people that you know, who are actually like, I've known them since they were students, or people like Trevor Chambers, who has worked with me for over 35 years, or someone like a Paul Varela, who you know because he works with a drum now, but that's probably a 20-year relationship. But I think loyalty is just being there for people when things are tough, as well as when they're going well. And uh, all of the people I've just mentioned have all been through like really tough periods where things weren't going as they'd planned. And it's just, I, I think that, and my dad was like that. My dad, there was, in some parts of our wider family, there were a few people that you wouldn't want to invite around for Sunday dinner. <laughs> like, and I'm sure in Glasgow there's probably a lot more of them but my dad would always always have time for them and he would never judge anybody based on something that was like a one-off you know if someone had been caught stealing or whatever he might be really annoyed at them but he wouldn't write them off and I, and I think that's probably uh, and I think Jonathan Cummings who used to work at the Institute of Directors, is now based in China for Landor and Fitch. And, and he once said to me, had I watched a film called Pay It Forward? And I'd never watched the film, so I didn't know what he was talking about. 
But he told me that the way that I was in life, because he employed my daughter, so he got to know the family really well. And he told me to watch the film Pay It Forward because he said that the, the person within that is very similar in approach to, to me. So I had to watch that after, after he told me to check whether that actually, and I think that is, and it's true because you are paying things forward, always. If you do something today, you're not doing it for a reward next year or the year after. But as I found when I packed in full-time work and I became a consultant, the people that were hiring me were people that I'd met 30 years earlier as, as students. And so several of the jobs I had, I would never have ha I had had I not done something all those years ago for X, Y or Z person. Well, I don't think there's any better moment than to conclude right now. Pay it forward, I think, is what you're saying loud and clear. Yeah. And Phil, I just want to thank you. I want to thank your mum. I want to thank your dad, Big Phil Jones, for bringing you into this world and having you with us today. So thank you so much. And Catherine and Beryl for not telling on me when I played truant from school. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's not forget them. <laughs> thanks so much, Phil. Uh, thanks, Lynn. That was lovely. <laughs>